Hello and welcome to the first ever SEG Research Podcast from the University of Portsmouth. Now SEG stands for School of the Environment, Geography and Geosciences and we'll be exploring some of the latest and greatest research on the natural world undertaken by scientists in the school. Uh, so my name is Dr James Darling and I'll be playing at being host and my guest today is Dr Catherine Mottram who's Senior Lecturer of Structural Geology and Tectonics in SEG. And Catherine has recently led a paper into new ways of studying faulting in the Earth's crust, which has been published in Geology. So we're going to explore the paper and also find out a bit more about Catherine's interests and experience. Well, I hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you want to find out more, you can always track us down on the University of Portsmouth website. So Catherine, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, it's great to have you here in this inaugural SEG research podcast um, to talk about some of your recent research successes and some of the things that interest you in geosciences. Um, so I thought we'd start, rather than delve straight into the paper, we could start with just talking a little bit about your field. Um, now you're a senior lecturer in structural geology and tectonics. So what kind of uh, processes does that involve? Great. Well, thanks for having me, James. I'm very excited about our new podcast series. Structural geology and tectonics is a really broad and quite interdisciplinary field within geology, which I really like about structural geology because structures affect all kinds of rocks and through all periods of geological time. So we're really concerned about lots of different things in the earth. So structural geologists are concerned with the deformation of the Earth's crust. So this is broadly controlled by large scale plate tectonic processes that have essentially led to crumpling of the Earth's crust, building of the largest mountain belts, as well as you know, sedimentary basins, oceans. You know, structures are really involved in most Earth processes. And we're particularly interested in the study of faults. So faults are planar weaknesses within the crust. It's where rocks start moving past each other, really um, accommodating those big plate tectonic forces. But also they're really important conduits for fluids, so such as water, you know, oil and gas, um, or generating fluids, all sorts of things. Yeah, amazing. So yeah, we tend to think about you know, mountain building processes and big tectonics, but obviously the sounds like they're very important to a whole range of processes from maybe potentially geothermal energy through to ore deposits that we're going to talk about later and uh, other natural resources. So yeah, lots to study. Cool. So can yeah. you tell us a little bit about your research in this field and how you contribute to these big scale processes? So I've been concerned with dating structures, basically, for my whole geological career. So looking at how old the structures are, so how old the rocks are, but also how old are the deformation processes. So when those rocks have moved through the crust along this structure. So why that's important is because the rates and timescales of these structural weaknesses and the movement in the crust is um, relates to loads of different processes, as I said before. So I started off my career working in the Himalaya. So here we've obviously had India and Asian continents colliding, and we've had hundreds or even thousands of kilometers of movement of, um, of crust 
through being taken down very deep into the crust, even into the mantle, and then being extruded along these massive continental scale shear zones. So I was looking at the main central thrust, which is one of the biggest structures on Earth. It's 1,500 kilometers long and it spans many, many different countries. And so we're interested in how long has this been active, how deep, where have the rocks come from, and how quickly have they come up to the surface. And that really helps us understand sort of fundamental orogenic processes. So I was really concerned with like fairly deep crust, so thinking about ductile, hot, squishy processes that are happening you know, deep in the Earth's crust. And so um, as I've continued through my career, I've sort of come slightly further up to the surface. So <laughs> I'm still interested in those deep ductile processes that are happening in you know, the roots of mountain belts. But I'm also interested with shallower, brittle crusts as well, and really um, developing exciting ways that we can date how old these structures are and how quickly they've moved in the past. Yeah, cool. And it sounds... Got a great image of you being exhumed now towards the surface yes. of the earth. Yeah. Um, so obviously the, the paper's about radiometric dating of structures, which, you know, obviously this is very new, exciting science. Um, and so we want to focus on this paper, which is published in Geology, which is a very you know, widely read International Journal of Earth Science, very prestigious. Uh, and your paper entitled Sinking Fault Rock Clocks direct comparison of uranium lead carbonate and potassium argon illite fault dating methods. So that sounds very technical and you know, lots there about presumably about radiometric dating and comparing different techniques. Um, but I just want to start off by saying like in this paper you've obviously worked in the Yukon, been working with uh, mining companies out in the Yukon. So could you just set the scene for us in terms of why you're studying the Yukon and why these, this radiometric dating is important there? Yep. Yeah, definitely. So I'll start off with why the Yukon. The Yukon is geologically very fascinating and very complicated in comparison to where I've come from in the Himalaya. In the Himalaya, we've had two continents colliding, bam, big mountains. Nice. Oh, simple, yeah. Yeah, simple. <laughs> Whereas in the Yukon, there's been sort of 200 million years of tiny fragments of crust and island arcs, which have smashed into the margin of North America. And it's extremely complicated. And there's lots of really large scale structures. So huge strike slip faults, which have been active for at least, we don't really know how long, but for at least the majority of this, what we call an accretionary origin. So it's slightly different from a continental, continental type orogenic belt in the Himalaya. So we were interested because there's these, yeah, faults are really important there for controlling the deformation, for controlling movement and huge scale strike slip motions that are, happen over hundreds of kilometers of movement. But as well as that, this is an incredibly rich, mineral, mineral rich region. So it's really where a lot of the mineral deposits in the north of Canada are concentrated, or at least one of the places. So in every, most people have heard of the gold rush, which happened just over 100 years ago. And this is when people rushed to the Yukon from um, further south in America to find gold. And it's not quite the, the same for our research. We were rushing there to find gold, but essentially it is connected to gold mineralization. And what's interesting about the Yukon is had this complex um, sort of confluence of lots of different processes, so faulting, 
igneous and magmatic processes, fluid flow, subduction, deformation. And that's kind of the perfect recipe for getting metal deposits in the crust, because often you need this perfect confluence of different um, structural magmatic hydrothermal processes. Yeah, so a lot going on, lots of good reasons to go there. Um, I, I, I imagine the Yukon is like big country, driving around in big trucks, big scenery. Does that sound about right? Yeah, so I absolutely love the Yukon. It's brilliant. It's massively, massively, massive. I can't even <laughs> quantify how massive it is, but it's much bigger than the UK, maybe about four times the size of the UK or something ridiculous like that. And there's about 20,000 people who live there or some ridiculously small number. So it's um, a big area with not much there except for many, 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 many trees and huge rivers we didn't see any bears though or moose which i was very disappointed <laughs> by um it's also in the a lot of the yukon is in the arctic circle so when we i spend the summers there so it's light all the time in the summer so it never gets dark so it's a bit bizarre especially the first time you go and especially when you're camping and you sort of wake up and you never know what time it is because it's always a bit light <laughs> outside yeah no excuse to not do lots of field work though right. yeah it's a bit concerning you can basically work 24 hours a day <laughs> um, okay and then in terms of the the more technical aspects of the paper you've obviously been comparing geochronological methods um so the title mentions uranium lead dating of carbonate and potassium argon dating of illite clay in the faults um so could you just summarize you know why you undertook that comparison and what, what you found? Yeah, so if I take a step back to start off with and explain a little bit how we date faults. So what I was talking about in the beginning was dating ductile structures, which is relatively easy because they were looking at sort of mid-crustal, relatively hot geological processes where minerals that we can use to tell geological time, basically, they crystallize under these conditions. And these minerals suck in uranium and lead when they are, well, maybe lead, but uranium when they're crystallizing. And we can use radiometric dating. So looking at uranium, which decays to lead over geological time. So when we're looking at those sort of traditional, what we call geochronometers, it's relatively easy to date those. We use in situ laser ablation methods. So this is where we hit a mineral with um, a laser, we ablate the material, and then we suck it into a mass spectrometer and we measure the uranium and lead content and we use that to be able to work out how old it is. So in the mid crust, it's, things are relatively easy. But in the shallow crust, it's difficult because those minerals that we traditionally use dating, so these are minerals like zircon, for instance, they don't crystallize in the upper crust because it's too cold. Um, you don't have the right geological sort of cooking situation for those minerals to crystallize. So traditionally in the brittle crust, we haven't really been able to date faults. We can just sort of look at relative timings of cross-cutting relationships, that kind of thing. But recently, basically, mass spectrometers have been getting better and better and better. And our ways of being able to analyze material has been get, getting better and better. So that means that we can now start to date phases with very, very low concentrations of uranium. 
So um, typically in minerals such as carbonate, which is what we're interested in for this study, the uranium concentration is incredibly very, very, very small. So less than one ppm uranium. So it's only been the last sort of five to 10 years, there's been a kind of revolution in the way we can approach this. So we can actually date carbonate and other very low uranium minerals and use that to work out when it crystallized. Why this is useful for structures is because carbonate is everywhere in the crust. It's, you know, it crystallizes really easily in a whole load of hydrothermal fluid flow deformation processes. So it crystallizes commonly as silicon fibers in brittle structures. And it's really revolutionized the way that we can date upper crustal deformation. So for this project, we wanted to take this new geochronometer, which is relatively underused. Um, certainly in the Yukon, no one had ever used it before. And there's still a lot of things we don't really understand about it, like exactly what is that uranium-led sort of date telling us about when that carbonate crystallized. There's lots of analytical challenges with dating carbonate using uranium-led dating. It's really hard to measure such tiny, tiny amounts of uranium. And there's still lots of things we don't understand about it. So what we wanted to do is compare it with a more uh, well-established method for dating brittle faults. Because although I said at the beginning, you know, it was sort of not possible to date these before, that was a slight lie in that it was <laughs> using a method that's really, really hard and really expensive to use. So it wasn't, it's not a very appealing method, but it's using potassium argon dating. So potassium argon are another radiometric dating technique. So potassium decays to argon over, over time. And we can, if we measure potassium argon in uh, phases which are rich in those elements, then we can understand when that, um, in this case, clay formed. So this is related to how we date micas as well. It's the same kind of technique. The only problem is that clays are really, 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 really small, stupidly small. They're, you know, less than, <laughs> sometimes less than 0.1 microns, which, yeah, I can't even explain what, what the equivalent is because it's just stupidly small. You have to use a specialist microscope to be able to see it. And the way that we date um, fault rocks using potassium argon is we look at clays that are formed due to that sort of rubbing together of the rocks. The, um, the rocks break down and they form new tiny clay minerals which is formed during that fault process. And I was thinking about this yesterday actually that almost it's almost you know, how quickly that clay forms, I'm not sure we really understand, but it's almost like dating an earthquake. Not quite, but, you know, we're looking at those kind of catastrophic events where there's been really, really, you know, a lot of mechanical breakdown of the rocks and it's, it's growing these new tiny clay minerals. Um, it's also analytically very challenging because you need to separate out these stupidly small clays and then analyze the potassium and argon and it's not an in situ method like what I was just describing where we hit something with a laser put it in a mass spectrometer that's quite quick and easy this is very hard arduous takes weeks months and yeah. many 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 sad times for the people doing it <laughs> sorry I'm not being very positive, <laughs> not being very if, you positive clay, <laughs> if you love clay then people people like it clay is not my favorite thing in the world it sounds so really difficult like, yeah 
the idea is that if we could compare these methods, we, if we could get the same ages, then it would make us more confident in both of them. Um, it would help us to interpret what the dates mean. And it would also, yeah, just if we could do the same thing with calcite dating as we could with potassium argon dating, carbonate dating is way easier, way cheaper, way quicker, much less heartache and gray hair. So it, you know, that is a bet, it might be a better option than clay dating. Yeah, and I guess another massive advantage is you can do it in Portsmouth. Yes. <laughs> Which is good. Yeah, um, so for us, you know, we have been building up this capability with Randy Parrish, who's one of our other academics here over, you know, several years. So we're really sort of establishing ourselves as one of the places to do carbonate dating in the world. Mm -hmm. So that's why we were interested in this. Yeah, great. Um, and then so you obviously got ages that match between the two different approaches. Um, but what does that imply then for, you mentioned mineral resources, you mentioned tectonics. So do those ages tell you something new about the Yukon and about those, those systems? Yes, definitely. So yeah, what we found was that we got the same ages in both systems, which was really good because it made us more confident that both of these different methods are with directly dating fault generated material. So we got a range of ages. So one was about 73 million years old, which is the oldest age that we got in both methods. Um, and this is only slightly younger than the igneous intrusions in the area. So I'm, I maybe need to zoom back a second and explain a little bit more about that but um, I think just from a methodological point of view we we're really happy with the results because we were able to show both this mechanical faulting age and fluid flow because as well as the silicon fibers which are those calcite minerals that have grown on the fault surface we also analyzed veins so these are essentially you can think of them as like paleo fluid flow in the crust it's when we've had um, deformation or some kind of process that's making space in the crust which opens up these extensional fractures then we have fluids flushing along these and forming carbonate and that gave us the same age as the fault. So just from a purely sort of structural geology point of view, what we're able to, to see is that this fluid flow was accompanied by periods of gouge forming, which shows that basically um, we needed to have this active on, uh, activity on the fault in order to release the fluids, which is what we always think happens because fluids um, yeah, fluid pressure in the crust and structures are really important because if you've got fluids in the crust, it weakens the rocks and that makes them more likely to break and form faults. So these, really by using these two different methods, we're able to see this interplay between fluid flow and mechanical faulting really well. Yeah. Which is obviously important for the, the formation of the faults themselves, but also presumably for the ore deposits that are you know, in the area yes. as well. If you can understand the timing of fluid flow, maybe you can say something new about those as well in the future. Yes. Yeah, so if I sort of go sort of zoom out again and now focus with my mineralizing hat on, because 
as I said, we, th this project is kind of a bit of a two-pronged project in that we originally went there to test these methods. That's the reason we went to this area. The reason we went to this specific area was actually because we knew someone in the company um, that is exploring in this area. So it's called Triumph Gold and they are a junior exploration company. So they're looking for gold and copper mineralization in this area. And we went there because we knew them and turned out that they were really awesome. And I've spent two summers in their camp hanging out with geologists every day for weeks. And it's like really fun geology field summer camp for me. I know for them, they're doing a job. But for me, it felt um, extremely fun to be yeah. with people every day looking at rocks for their economic value. So why is there gold and copper in this area? Well, there's these huge strike-slip faults, as I mentioned. So the Big Creek Fault, I probably should have said that word before in this study, because that's the fault that we've been looking at for comparing these fault methods. So this is a large strike-slip fault. It is parallel to other huge strike-slip faults, which actually go all the way down to the mantle in this area. Um, and they've controlled massive amounts of displacement. So like hundreds of kilometers, like 500 kilometers of movement or more. Um, so just to give you an example of the names, so these are parallel to the Tintina and the Denali Fault, which are huge uh, faults that are still active. So these strike-slip faults are thought to have um, controlled the emplacement of some igneous bodies. So they're kind of like, it's thought to be a Cretaceous continental arc. So this formed during this overall accretionary history. And so it's always thought that these igneous rocks have been spatially associated with these strike-slip faults, but no one really knew how old the faults were. And although we had some constraints on the mineralization timing, um, it wasn't really well understood how the faulting, fluid flow, igneous emplacement and uh, metal deposits were all connected. This is broadly a porphyry style deposit. So that means it's hosted largely in granitic type rocks. So these are magma chambers essentially have been emplaced and with, we think, structurally controlled by the Big Creek Fault. So the Big Creek Fault has made these little pull-aparts, little spaces in the crust, which magma have said, oh, thank you very much. I'll occupy that space because that's easy. And so it fills up with um, what's called the White Horse Suite, which is a Cretaceous granitoid. Uh, it's largely granodirite. And this hosts lots and lots of copper, gold, and molybdenite uh, mineralization, which is disseminated within the granite, but also largely hosted in veins along fractures and breccia zones. And part of the sort of porphyry style deposit means that there's sort of these kind of explosive um, mixtures of hot magmatic fluids which have mixed with surface fluids coming off these granitoids and then enriching the sort of surrounding area with mineral deposits. So our dating really has been able to sort of link all these processes because we know that the granitoids are cretaceous so, and it's thought that the ones that are responsible for the mineralization are probably late Cretaceous, so about 75-ish million years, but we don't, it's not super well constrained. Um, so if you remember from the dates that I said, the oldest date we got was 73. So it's basically immediately after these granites have just crystallized. 
and it's showing that the fault was active throughout this time. I think it probably was active before then, but we don't see that recorded in our data, which I don't think that's surprising because if you think about when a granite is being emplaced into a fault zone, it's going to be very, very hot. It's going to be very squishy. It's not going to be forming brittle fault rocks such as fault gouge and silicon fibers. Um, so yeah, I think what it shows is that we've had fluid flow immediately post granite emplacement, which is what we thought. And what really the next part of the research is to really focus on these veins and sort of all of the different ages that we get from the vein systems and um, the economic minerals that we have associated with them. So you've, you've preempted my final question, which was going to be like, where is this going next? Are you still working in the Yukon? And, you know, you've got lots of international partners on this paper. There's companies, there's uh, researchers in Japan, Australia, Canada, obviously the UK. Um, so you've got this international team, you've got companies involved. So what's, you know, just the last thing then, just briefly, what's next for this research? Yes, it's definitely continuing. So um, the, yeah, this involves lots of different people. So I've got partners at Triumph Gold, which are the exploration company that work in this area. Um, also with the Geological Survey of Canada and the Yukon Geological Survey, so that's the, sort of the provincial and the national geological survey. Um, we had help from different labs across the world with the clay dating because we can't do that. Actually, I'm not sure we can do clay dating in the UK or certainly not, not many people do that. So what I'm going to be doing next is focusing more on the mineralization history. So doing more carbonate uranium lead dating of veins and linking that to the gold and copper mineralization in this deposit. And I'm also interested in expanding throughout the area. So there's some huge mineral, other mineral deposits. And a couple of those are in this sort of initial stages of turning into a gold mine. So Casino is one of the biggest um, mines or going to be one of the biggest mines in the Yukon. That is part of this whole same suite of rocks. It's the same age. It's kind of associated with the same structure. So yeah, I'm interested in expanding out, working with other companies and other researchers, basically. Um, and as well as that, you know, what we've found in this study is that carbonate dating can really open up understanding brittle, vaulting and also fluid flow in the upper crust sort of timing of those processes for the first time yeah. and these kind of shallow fluid flow processes happen in every single mineral deposit and there's carbonate lots of different mineral deposits and lots of them have structural controls as well that maybe aren't that well understood mm -hmm. so actually there's a lot of potential for this same approach to be to be applied to other other mineral deposits in completely different places in the whole world yeah. and of course that's useful because as we continue to move towards using more renewable energies and that kind of thing we're we're constantly going to need metal resources and the more we can understand about the models that control these you know and understanding the processes uh, the better really absolutely sounds amazing um so there's lots to do by the sounds of it, but this is a really exciting avenue for research. Um, and I think one thing we didn't mention is that you had funding for this study from the Natural Environment Research Council. Uh, you've obviously had support from companies as well. Um, so there's you know, a lot of investment, a lot of interest in this work, and we're really looking forward to seeing what comes next. Um, 
Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I should definitely say thank you very much to the NERC Arctic office who have given me three years worth of funding for this project. And as well as that, as you said, there's been sort of in-kind support from the companies. They've fed and watered me very well when I've <laughs> <laughs> when I've been staying with them in the Yukon. And also just, you know, it's been fantastic. As I said, I think that anyone who gets a chance to go and hang out in an exploration camp should go and do it because it's a very fun experience. Yeah. Um, and also, as well as that, I should say that this research is also forming some of the dissertation students' work this year. So I've actually got three Portsmouth students who's, who are going to be working on some of my samples and looking at some of the data. So hopefully they're excited about getting involved in current research that's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Those are undergraduate students. Yes. Yeah, cool. So pretty, pretty cool thing to work on for your undergrad project, I think. Yeah. Um, so I think we're out of time, so we'll leave it there. But thank you very much. That was fascinating. Um, I've learned a lot um, and I hope people listening have as well. So thank you for your time, Catherine. Great. Thanks very much, James. No worries. <laughs> Until next time. <laughs>